0: This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast.
1: This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. For our next two episodes, we're talking about an issue that affects all of us, but that none of us really want to talk about, financial wellness. With stagnating wages and the always increasing cost of housing, especially with the bonkers housing market we're experiencing right now, it doesn't just feel like life is draining your wallet even more than usual, it is. For me, it feels impossible to somehow save enough for my retirement, an emergency savings account, a down payment on a house, Thanks, Denver. My health savings account, and to pay off my car loan. Luckily, we've got two special guests on the show to help us break it all down. Ravi Ramanathan is the Director of Investigations at the New Jersey Office of the State Comptroller. Ravi is also basically my unofficial financial advisor, along with my mom. He's one of my closest friends, and he's super knowledgeable about personal finance. Before going into public service, Ravi was in big law, and he was a federal law clerk. And before all of that, we met at Brown in August 2005 in the Brown University Orchestra and discovered a shared love for the TV show The West Wing while studying at Wayland House, my freshman dorm. And thus, a lifelong friendship was born.
2: Hi, Sonia. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ravi. I'm a little embarrassed by all that. And thank you for for calling me out on all of that stuff. So thanks.
1: (laughs) No, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. We also have with us another special guest who regular listeners of the podcast will know, Matthew Kerbis. Matthew, do you want to introduce yourself?
0: Yes, my name is Matthew Kerbis and I am also here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an attorney in private practice at a small firm, Conrad & Cook in Chicago. And I host the regular segment the Financial Wellness Minute on uh, Young Lawyer Rising. And so I'm honored to be actually on an episode. So thank you, Sonia, for inviting me.
1: Yeah, of course. I'm I'm very happy to have you too. And the reason that we've got both of you is that today we're going to be talking about a very important issue for, I think, really all young lawyers, lawyers in general, and certainly for all of us, and that's financial wellness. But before we get into that, I just want to give all of our listeners a disclaimer that none of us are certified financial planners and we literally have no idea what we're doing. So take this discussion with a huge grain of salt. And you know, also I think just, you know, for me personally, I want to acknowledge my my own privilege in that I have been gainfully employed throughout the pandemic in the same job that I had before the pandemic started.
2: Yeah, and and Sonia, I should also add in the spirit of us getting our disclaimers out there that uh, I'm here very much uh, as a friend and, and in my personal capacity, and not here on behalf of the New Jersey government or in any official capacity. So I will not talk about state business, no matter how much you you try. But hopefully, uh, our topic will come nowhere near that in any way.
1: It will not. It will not. <laughs> I assure you, it will not. And we are we're not going to go there, but we are going to talk about financial wellness. Uh, so I'll just start the conversation by saying, you know, that most of the time it feels like a lawyer's financial wellness is very much tied to what their student loan situation is like and how burdensome those payments are. Ravi, did you have student loans to pay back? And if so, how did you manage that and what was your strategy?
2: Yeah, so I mean, really, yes, I think like most uh lawyers, I came out of law school with quite a bit of debt, actually. And Not only from law school, but also from undergrad. And for me, you know, I did go into big law when I left law school, and a big reason for that was that student loan debt. Um, And I will admit, it was a you know, as you said, I was very privileged to be able to do that and to be able to get that paycheck in order to really be aggressive about it. Um, You know, that being said, I did end up becoming a law clerk, um, where my pay got cut pretty significantly, so I had to. Think creatively about how to manage um, some of that debt. So for me, it was sort of a you know a one-two strategy. When I was earning a bigger paycheck, um, I did try to aggressively pay down loans with whatever extra income I had, and uh, you know that included my bonuses if I got any in a given year. And um, you know and whatever extra income i i managed to bring in well and that was hard especially at first um because i didn't really know what i was doing um i was working in new york city and new york city's really expensive um and it took years now when i uh went into government and you know started as a law clerk i did some things to reduce my day-to-day expenses um you know i moved to to Brooklyn, uh, which admittedly is pretty expensive these days, but, uh, (laughs) I
1: know I'm like Brooklyn, (laughs) you (laughs) know, but
2: I, I, I got roommates. I, you know, dramatically (laughs) cut down on eating out and, and things like that. And yeah. And the point was to try to keep making regular payments, um, to that loan debt. And, you know, for me, In particular, I was targeting uh, my high-interest loans first as much as I could. At least with, and we we can talk a little bit more about this with federal loans. There are are a variety of strategies I think people use, and one thing I did, and I regret not doing sooner, is you know when I did go back into private practice, a key part of my strategy uh, in trying to get them paid off was to refinance them. So. In particular when my income went back up, you know I took advantage of that and uh, used that to, you know basically repackage my loans at a lower interest rate. Um, and that was very, very helpful. I wish I had done that sooner when I initially started in private practice uh, because my income was higher and then it dropped again, which makes refinancing a lot more difficult. But that is that was one thing I took a lot of advantage of and, and that really helped me get over the finish line. Um, at the end, and honestly, that was a very unique. And I acknowledge this, and I'm glad that you pointed out, Sonia, that you know all of us here. I think are in, in a lot of ways are, are very privileged, and I very much uh, think about that all the time. And I was very lucky to have had the jobs that I had over the years, and was able to to make some of those choices. And you know, Matthew and uh, and Sonia, maybe both of you can weigh in on this too. There are I think a variety of, of different strategies people can take. This is what I did, but everybody's situation is, is completely different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think so much of, of what a person's strategy is is going to depend, you know, in large part on where are they are living, what's the cost of living, and what their income's like. Uh, I mean, Matthew, do you want to talk a little bit about how you've addressed and sort of approached paying off your student loans?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that was in the beginning. I did not. <laughs> um, I've made quite a lot of progress since the beginning. I graduated from law school in whew, 2014, so not so long ago, but it's a while ago now. I mean, I'm approaching 10 years, right? So, and you know, speak about you know privilege that we had jobs through the pandemic, absolutely. And I was also very fortunate that I had a job lined up, just at a at a small law firm working for one attorney who was also hiring on another associate so we were his first two associates so very small job but I had a job lined up even before I sat for the bar exam and so not a lot of people you know were in that situation so I felt very fortunate because I think back then the you know national average employment rate was something like 55% for graduates for law school so I felt very lucky then but being at a small firm like that small where the attorney was just starting to bring on associates I was not making a lot of money. And so I did pay as you earn, which is available to me at the time. So it was, gosh, I, you know, I can't even remember now because I just, uh, after two years at that job and and moving to another job, I started to aggressively pay off my student loans. But, you know, pay as you earn was after so many decades of making the minimum payments that were required, eventually you'd get loan forgiveness, but it was taxable, right? Because it was not the same thing as, you know, the public interest version of that. So my payments were zero dollars because my debt to income ratio was what it was so I was like great I don't have to make any payments so I didn't have that sort of same stress at first because I was just thinking well great I don't have to make any payments I I hope I make more money and then if I do I'll make whatever those payments are Uh, not sort of realizing that every single month my interest was capitalizing and it was going towards my principal and then the interest was increasing significantly because of that so I didn't really have the financial grounding to fully understand that and I was fortunate that actually my um, my future spouse, her father. I'll let him maintain his privacy, but let's just say he has a a background in uh, studying finance, and his career was related to finance. So he sort of set me on the right path to making sure I was actually making payments instead of just doing these, you know, zero dollars a month qualifying payments for pays you earn. And within two years, I was I was very much managing my budget in the ways that I talk about on the Financial Wellness Minute to make sure that I can save a little bit and make as aggressive payments as I can to pay down my student loan debt, which I've been doing now for the last five or so years, and I've been able to pay off over six figures in five years.
1: Oh, my goodness, Matthew. That's like, that's tremendous.
0: I still have over 50000 left, so I've got my fingers crossed for that debt forgiveness. (laughs) But, you know. Wow. (laughs) I think everybody has their fingers crossed on the debt
2: forgiveness, I think. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's interesting that you you bring up the capitalization, because I feel like that's a trap a lot of people fall into. And it's really hard, right? Like, in particular, if you're, you know, operating on a relatively small salary, and your federal loans allow you the flexibility to make lower payments, that's very tempting, right? And of course, the downside to that is, you're barely paying off the interest or you're not paying off the interest on your loans. And then that eventually gets capitalized into your principal balance. And then that Increases your interest in the long term, which is just a, a vicious cycle of awfulness. I think being aware of that and trying to, you know, be aggressive in, in paying it down as quickly as possible, I, I think, is important to realize. But though I acknowledge that, you know, that can be very, very hard, and it's something that I, I was always afraid of. And, you know, some people, you know, are just not in a situation where they can be aggressive with their loans right away. But that was always in the back of my mind. And Matthew, I'm sure you have thoughts about that.
0: Yeah, it's just, um, it's definitely not explained going into law school. And and for everyone, um, you know, they have a different context, right? Like context matters going into law school, coming out of law school. And I think, you know, one of the things that I will tell to high school students and college students that are considering law school is... You know, you really have to try to appreciate the opportunity cost here and and understand you know the financial decisions you're making if you know if you really want to be an attorney, because looking back, I do sort of wonder would I have more aggressively pursued scholarships? Would I have maybe picked a law school that I got uh, you know more of a scholarship towards? Being an attorney was the right career choice for me, e- even given the cost. You know, the cost benefit analysis wasn't there. You know, knowing what I know now, looking back. You know, if I just wanted to go and make the most money, I would have gotten a job day one out of college and just worked for three years and then had three years experience, right? Like if that was my goal. But I wanted to be an attorney, so it was the right choice for me. But for other people, they might see an attorney as a cash grab or a career where it's guaranteed, you know, I go to be an attorney, I'm going to make money first of all, I think you're going to burn out very quickly. And second of all, uh, what we're talking about here with the student loan situation is unless, you know, you're sitting on a pile of money and some people are, and that's great, or you you get really good grades and you get an excellent scholarship, that's great. But most people going to law school are, are not going to be in that situation. You know, you have to seriously consider and learn and try to educate yourself on exactly, you know, the, the little things like capitalization, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Matthew, that You know, and maybe this is a function, too, of when I went to law school. Like, so when I started law school and then when I graduated, I graduated from college in 2009, the U.S. financial markets and like really globally, like everything was melting down in the fall of 2008. It was super scary. And so I ended up taking a year between college and law school. But that year, it turns out, was super helpful to me personally in terms of figuring out kind of what you were talking about in terms of, you know, the opportunity cost of going to law school because there is an opportunity cost, right? Like you're, you're sitting in school learning and not making money, you know, whereas you could be maybe working a job and and getting more experience and also making more money. Right. But I, I was an AmeriCorps member that year between college and law school. And, you know, I got to tell you, I mean, I was making so little money. I was barely making my rent every month. I mean, it was super stressful and that was a very formative experience for me. That was what I realized that I am pretty risk averse when it comes to, you know, my financial situation in terms of my salary, where I live, what the cost of living is. That all kind of deeply influenced, I think, decisions I, I later on ended up making in terms of, you know, where I wanted to base myself and and how I wanted to do that. So I think that that's right. And I'll just address like quickly sort of what what my own situation was. And, you know, first, I want to acknowledge the extreme amount of privilege that I have and that my mom helped me a lot with law school and college. And so my debt situation, I want to acknowledge that is not and and was not the same as I think a lot of folks are. But I benefited from that. I actually did a good amount of research on what tuition was like and what I might be able to expect in terms of, of debt And then, you know, huge shout out, I guess, to like the exit counseling at Boston College Law School. I mean, I understood that like that if I if I picked the pay as you go option, I had primarily both subsidized and unsubsidized Stafford loans. So those those are federal loans. And I understood that if I chose to go with that option where I was making like zero dollar payments, that was going to be an issue. So I guess shout out to them for that. But that became relevant when I worked at a firm my first year of practice. I was making pretty decent money particularly for Albuquerque, right? Like I think that starting salary was 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 pretty good. But then <laughs> I got in my head that I wanted to go into public service. So then I went to the District Attorney's office in Albuquerque and I literally took almost a 50% pay cut. I went from making $80,000 a year to making $45,000 a year, and that was pretty drastic. But this whole time and again going back to like decisions that I made that were influenced by you know my experience with this when I moved back home to Albuquerque, I actually decided to move in with my mom at home so that I had more available income to pay off my loans as quickly as possible. And that was what I did. So when you all are talking about paying off your loans aggressively, that's exactly what I did. I think I was spending, I don't know, I think I was putting something like $2,000 or maybe $3,000 a month towards my loans, like my first like several years of practice. So that helped a lot. But then when I started making way less money I kept making the same level of payment. But again, that's because I was living at home with my mom, <laughs> which was fun. I mean, we watched Jeopardy every day, and that was great. I mean, pour one out for Alex Trebek. I miss him. Um, but but yeah, so I made some choices very early on in my legal career that I think were very much largely driven by financial considerations. You know, For example, I was a summer associate at my firm in Albuquerque that I ended up getting an offer from and working at. But I accepted that offer and I moved home in part because I wanted that stability. I wanted to know that I was moving to a place that wasn't going to kill me financially, like unlike Boston, right? Mm. Boston's brutal. Or New York City. Which or uh, New York City and, and and Ravi, I mean, we talked about this actually like back then. And I remember being like, you know, I don't know if I could stay on the East Coast. This is bonkers.
2: Yeah. Here's $3,000 a month for a box and a closet um, <laughs> to live in Manhattan. It's, uh, it's absolutely nuts.
1: <laughs> right. Right. But I think that relates to Ravi to what you were saying before that it can be really hard to make those aggressive payments on student loans in the beginning of your career.
2: Yeah. And certainly for me, like and I was sort of dumb when I I first moved to New York. I had my own one bedroom when I started, and because I was you know had the the luck to work at a, a fancy firm when I I graduated from law school, I was able to afford it. But that meant that I wasn't making super aggressive payments on uh, my student loans, and I just didn't think about it all that closely. And you know I also didn't take advantage, and we'll talk about this in a minute, like of of the like 401k that we had and and things like that. Instead, I spent money on things New Yorkers spend money on, which was an apartment that I really should have had a roommate when I moved to New York and I didn't. And, you know, it was great. I, I ended up getting a roommate the next year and actually ended up loving that living situation uh, in Brooklyn more than, you know, anywhere else uh, during my time in New York City. And uh, I really just should have done that sooner. And it's very easy to sort of fall down, and particularly in expensive cities like New York or Boston or or LA, you know, like to just sort of go down the rabbit hole of things people spend money on there. I think the, the common joke is, you know, brunch is the reason I'll never own property. That's <laughs> un- unfortunately very, very real. Uh, it's more real than you would think. <laughs>
1: We're going to talk about this later too, but that might be a little bit my problem. But that's <laughs> not what we're talking about right now. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I mean, that's that is very much a trap, right? Like you're, particularly when you're setting out at the beginning of your career. You know, first, you know, for me, it was the first time I, I had ever lived in in a major city. Um, I started my career as a teacher in the Mississippi Delta. So uh, I paid like. You know, four hundred dollars a month for a three-bedroom house. Admittedly, two hours from any major city, and in a town of one thousand people. So, uh, I just really, you know, for my very meager public school teacher salary, that was very easy to live on uh, out in in the rural delta. And then when I graduated from law school, and then moved to one of the biggest cities in the world, and uh, one of the most expensive cities in the world. Uh, I just did not appreciate just how easy it is to fall down that rabbit hole and you know spend hundreds of dollars on on going out to restaurants every week if you're not careful and even on groceries. Groceries are more expensive. Everything is more expensive. And you know not initially being hyper aware of that and sort of looking backwards after the fact and saying, "Oh God, what? How did I do that?" Was a mistake <laughs> and. One that I'm a little embarrassed about, but a lot of people end up in that situation. You know, and, and there are a lot of things I would have done differently. And I, I learned, took some time, <laughs> I had to grow up a little, but it, it really is, is tricky, right? And, you know, obviously student loans are in the back of your mind, no matter what, I think that it's just there uh, as a constant burden. But you're also like in a new job and, you know, living your life and, and trying to find your footing. And it's very easy to kind of forget to take the time to plan out a budget and to really think about how you're, you're spending your time and your money uh, on a day-to-day basis.
1: We hope you're enjoying our conversation about financial wellness with Ravi Ramanathan and Matthew Kerbis. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
0: The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down and dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience, including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app.
1: Welcome back. We now continue our conversation with Ravi Ramanathan and Matthew Kerbis.
0: That makes me ask the question, you know, what shocked you into that realization? Because one of the financial wellness minutes that we have talks about tracking what you spend compared to what you earn. And I wonder if you did that, maybe you would have been shocked into it sooner. But what was it, if you can recall, that sort of made you realize Whoa! I'm spending way too much money.
2: Yeah, it was. Eh, this is an embarrassing story. It was after a date I went on, where the the guy I was I was on the date with was pretty wealthy and uh, only a couple of years older than me, uh, and he wanted to go to Babbo, um, oh. a restaurant in a very oh. fancy <laughs> restaurant in New York City, oh. and. Oh, no. <laughs> and yeah you know, sort of kept ordering food and then me not w- wanting to you know this yeah obviously I did not stay with this person but it was it was a very it, it was fun and extremely expensive and me wanting to save face and not let this pretty well-off person pay for the whole thing I paid for half of it and then I sort of <laughs> thought after I looked at that bill like well Uh, I should probably check (laughs) what my spending trends are because I don't know how I ended up doing this. This is crazy. And then I I really took a minute to look at my finances and I started using some financial tracking apps. And I still use Mint, actually, which has been very helpful and started to track my spending. And that was a pretty unique and really dumb expense. But yeah, it was one of those things where I was like, well, why did I do that? And why was I comfortable doing that? I mean, maybe I felt pressured into, you know, in this very unusual circumstance, but I I shouldn't have put myself in that situation. And I should have thought about uh, my budget a little bit more. So a little embarrassing, (laughs) Matthew, but that's, that's what did it.
1: I love that story because I think it's an interesting moment that you specifically remember. But just to give our listeners a little bit of of background and and why I started cracking up when you were telling that story is because if I'm remembering correctly, Babo is, I think, now closed, but was the Italian restaurant that the now disgraced Mario Batali cooked at in New York. It is well regarded. It's one of the best or was one of the best restaurants, certainly in the country, and it is expensive as hell. Yeah. Is, does all that sound right? <laughs> that
2: is right. I also have not been back since
1: then. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh my God, I can't. Like, I have a financial hangover from that place. I can't ever go back. Can't do
2: it. I won't do it. It's <laughs> That was indulgent <laughs> for me. So it was, uh, and it's it's still open, I believe. Um, but oh, yeah, okay. a, but at the time that I went on the state, this was pre-Mario Bataldi, you know, all the... Uh, the things that came out about him. So certainly had no idea at the time.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. I mean, none of us did, right? I mean, who knew that? But yeah, Babo is is a ridiculously expensive restaurant. So I, I love that story. But I'm also sorry that happened because, you know, too, and I think that, and I don't have a similar story like that, but it's a little bit similar in the sense that when I've gotten myself into financial kind of situations that weren't great, You know, and in the category of like embarrassing, and and we're gonna talk a little bit about this, but um, there have been two specific times in my in my time as a lawyer that I recall having just too much credit card debt. I had way, way, way too much credit card debt. And and a lot of that honestly was linked to the fact that I was working at the DA's office and then I was a law clerk on the Mexico Court of Appeals, which was a wonderful experience, but the pay was not super, super high as it shouldn't be. I mean, we're in public service, but like, you know, I was trying to do things that were definitely not I don't think within my means and and, you know and I'll give an example I've been active in the ABA for years and you know and I hope people do become active in the ABA but you know I also want to be honest like a lot of stuff that I was doing involved a lot of travel for the ABA you know and it wasn't until the pandemic hit actually that I really looked back on all that travel to go to all those conferences And thought to myself, and I even had funding, actually, like in my leadership position with the ABA, I had some funding. And even then, when I went back to look at all the money that I was spending on that travel, it was insane. I mean, it was a lot of money, and it was honestly way outside what I could afford on any kind of reasonable budget. And I think that was when I realized, you know, and and that's also, again, linked to why I was putting these trips on this credit card but i then had limited means to pay that back and then i ended up getting so stressed about paying off my credit card and that was when i realized i was like you need to stop it with this like you just you need to stop like this is this is too much and it's putting you in kind of a bad situation financially
2: yeah i mean i love restaurants i mean don't get me wrong baba was delicious and I feel guilty. <laughs> I feel guilty saying that. And it's uh, I, I've, I can very much understand that, right? And it's it's fun, right? Like you living your life, right? And then you get that credit card bill, and you're like, "Oh my god, what what is this?"
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I think and sorry. So you brought it back to what I was gonna say, which was that I felt like I had to keep up, kind of with my friends that had, you know, that were, that were doing all that travel, I felt like I had to keep up. And that was a lot of pressure that I put on myself. Like, I, In other words, I mean, just to be completely perfectly honest, I hate being that person who has to say, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, I can't do X thing. I can't do Y experience. I can't whatever because it's just too expensive. I yeah. hated being that person.
2: And that's, that's so real too, right? Because that, you know, that's something that's just, you know, and I think more generally with financial wellness, that's, we just, it's not couth, I guess, or it's very embarrassing to talk about these issues with your friends or with your family, right? And nobody wants to, as you say, like, nobody wants to say, "I sorry, I can't go to that thing with you because it's too expensive and I can't afford it it feels bad and even though there's I, you know, I think there's no shame in saying that and i don't think there should be shame in people have to prioritize you know their finances or what's best for them but though no, that pressure is so real and i i mean part of the reason i'm here to talk about this is because i think talking about this in public and talking about our you know these issues you know it should be easier than that and uh, yeah, being able to have blunt conversations about you know where we are financially, I I think is important because you know I think a lot of this is educational, and I wish I knew some of the stuff that I learned over the years, like when I was in my early twenties, and I just didn't because we don't talk about these things really, and then we end up in situations where we kind of follow other people along, you know, without voicing, you know, where we are um, because it's embarrassing to talk about these issues and it really shouldn't be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a lot of shame sometimes in talking about the kinds of financial decisions that we've made, because in a lot of ways, what we're choosing to spend money on is a reflection of what our priorities are. Right. And I think what you just said a little bit ago was so real for me at that time And Ravi, you and I talked about this a lot, you know, when when I graduated from law school, it gave me a lot of heartburn. And and it was honestly painful to kind of in the beginning to choose to move back home. All of my friends at that time were were on the East Coast. Um, And even that summer that I was studying for the bar, you know, I mean, I was not working. I was just studying for the bar. But that also meant I had no money coming in. And at the time, I mean, it was an emotionally tough decision to say, you know what, I'm going to go home to study for the bar. I'm going to go home to Albuquerque. And that was very hard because all of my friends were in Boston and were studying for the bar actually like together, whereas I was like running around like my mom's house, like <laughs> studying for the bar, like all by myself. But like, it just, it was, yeah, there's just, there is a lot of shame in that because too, at the time, I think I was prioritizing travel so much because I had moved to Albuquerque I was building up my life there and, you know, now I'm proud to say I have lots of wonderful friends in New Mexico, but at the time I just was so going to these conferences with my friends and all the travel and and frankly travel to see some of my college and law school friends. It just made me feel less isolated and alone. And so that's why I was doing it, to be honest. But I just did not really have the financial room, like really the income to be doing that. So, yeah, so I think that that shame element is real and I and I hope that, you know, I hope that just because, we're, you know, by having this conversation, like hopefully maybe we're empowering like one more person to not feel bad when they have to say, you know, when they know in part because they've done a budget and they've followed, you know, Matthew's like tips in the financial wellness minute when they know, hey, this is a thing that I actually legit can't afford and so I'm sorry, like I can't, I can't do it.
2: Yeah. Like that Babo story I told is something I'm still embarrassed about. So I'm trying to get beyond shame here, guys. So I I hope that will encourage other people to embrace their, you know, the weird financial situations they might find themselves in and try to (laughs) avoid getting into them in the first place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in line with that and kind of in line with what we've been talking about, you know, one issue that I, I struggled with a lot when I started practicing was the advice that I should actually wait to pay off my student loans if doing so would allow me to save you know more money for for retirement and particularly for you know a down payment for a house something like that but as i'm finding out now you know like in my mid 30s as i actually am trying to like figure out how to buy a house mortgage lenders do look at your debt to income ratio and i am really glad that i buckled down and very aggressively paid off my student loans They've actually been paid off now for over a year, in my first seven years of practice. Because if I hadn't, that debt to income ratio would look really, really bad. But on the other hand, I don't think I've saved as much for retirement, for example, as I could have, and I know I haven't saved as much, you know, for a down payment as I could have. So, and Ravi and Matthew, you know, I'll ask you both this, but I'll start with Ravi. What's your opinion on this? Is it better to pay off student loans as quickly as possible? you know, like I did, even if that does force you to delay saving for retirement or down payment or both?
2: So I, I don't think there's a right answer to this. For me, I wanted my, for similar reasons to you, Sonia, I just wanted my loans paid off and, uh, and was very aggressive with them. And I think that people who do that, and a lot of people do that, I think very few of those people who manage to successfully pay off their loans have any regret about doing so over their retirement. That being said, you know, there are lots of reasons to put some money into a retirement account when you're younger, even if it's a little bit, right? Because I think the biggest reason is that when you invest when you're young, you benefit from the time horizon that that money is is growing um, with compound interest. And so the younger you are when you invest, the more that money's gonna grow. And, you know, in some ways it's a, it's a math question, right? You know the amount that your money's going to grow over time, as compared to the amount that you're uh, of interest on your loans that is going to make your principal uh, and payments grow and grow. And I think everybody has to do that math for themselves. But I mean, to the extent that you can afford to put some money away, I certainly don't think anybody loses out by putting money in a retirement account when they're young
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely true. That's also advice that I received, right? But it's also what you said. I mean, there's only so much money, right? Like I mean, like it is very hard to aggressively pay off your student loans like I was doing. and And I did manage to save, like I did manage to save a little bit for retirement. but and and particularly when I'm like I said, when I took a huge pay cut when I went into public service, that became really, really hard. And then also, Ravi, as you are now experiencing the joys of folks who are in public service or in government have a mandatory contribution. They call it a contribution to uh, <laughs> in Colorado, New Mexico. It's called the Public Employees Retirement Association or PARA. I don't know if that's what New Jersey calls it.
2: It's uh, PERS in New Jersey. Uh, I a public uh, employee retirement fund. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, or, yeah.
1: Retirement system. Sorry. Retirement system, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but as you're discovering, then they take that cut too. And I think the thought is like, well, okay, like that would be probably what you're saving anyway, right? So you don't need to, but the thing is like, and I don't know, call me paranoid, call me whatever you want, but I don't think those pensions are gonna exist when we're 60, 70, 80, when we're retiring. And so I have always approached it as I need to have my own my own savings, my own situation set up well apart from para to make sure that I'm that I'm going to be okay.
2: Matthew, what did you do when you were starting out paying off your loans versus like retirement?
0: Well, before I even get to that, I think it's important to answer Sonia's original question and then give you my answer. Um, And that is, I think context matters and it's the person's opportunity cost. Right. Like I have no question uh, like that. I would be making more money if I squirreled away all that money I was paying above what my required payment was into a 401k. Like the stock market did very good last year. And again, not everyone has this, but my father-in-law right helped me like set up my 401k investments. And I think I had over 22% return, right? Like way more than my interest on my student loans. That's you know a what I'm great saying. Year. <laughs> a wow, great great year! Wow, <laughs> <Yeah>. that's
1: amazing. <laughs>
0: so, so, and I just actually I went back in my email to look because I get those updates about what my rate return is. So I like that's to the minute. You know, I I I actually recall that it was over twenty two percent because I just looked at it. So should I have put more money into my four hundred one k in uh, in twenty twenty? Yeah, probably, but I didn't because I was saving up for a down payment to purchase a home right? And I can't purchase a home with money I don't have in it for a down payment. So, you know, my context was our lease was coming up. Uh, we were pregnant and we were living in a one bedroom in Chicago <laughs> <laughs> and there was a pandemic. So we were like, okay, there's forbearance on student loans, right? At 0% interest. At that point, you know, I, you know, I was paying off the interest immediately and a huge chunk of principal. I also looked in 2020, you know, it was only Three months that I made payments on my student loans, but I was averaging from 2019 and early 2020, $6,000 a month on student loans. Okay. And my wife worked from day one out of college. So, you know, like she, you know, earns a decent amount, right? And so I am, you know, at the time I was, you know, five, maybe six years or plus into practice. So, um, you know, I was earning more than I was when I was, you know, at that very, very small firm, you know, starting out. So we were able to afford to do that, but I also kept all my other costs super super low right like we were not spending any money on anything other than we essentially had to right and then the pandemic we really because we were like okay now we're saving up for a down payment on a home so we really slimmed down expenses right like previously in our budget we had a category called where like w-e-a-r right things you know you put on your body <laughs> your clothes it's like you know the shopping budget on clothes and we essentially eliminated that in 2020 right gone like where are we going we're going to be at home all all, all day, you know? So those are the kind of decisions that we made because we needed to buy a home. And, and because I was spending so much on student loans in one year, we were able to save up a 20% down payment on a home, right? Now, like, and this is one of the ways where I feel sort of bad because in the pandemic, you know, a lot of people were hurting and, you know, we we're still going to see some terrible, terrible fallout from, you know, failure of rent assistance and, and other issues going on right now, you know, in this country and around the world in terms of housing. But I was lucky enough that I was able to actually, you know, that like the pandemic really helped me. I don't know that I would have been able to save up to buy a home if the pandemic didn't come. We would have just rented a larger place, probably. But, to you know, to go back to the original question, I think it's not... It's not a black and white answer, right? It's like a little bit of both. You know, you put some into your 401k that you can and you put away as much as you can for your down payment while making hopefully a little bit more than your minimum student loan payments to see that you're actually paying it down, not just your minimum, you know, payment plan that your your debt load is actually increasing. Because like Sonia said, you know, debt to income ratio, had I not been paying off all my student loans, you know, leading up to that, even though I still have student loan debt. I don't know that I would have gotten as good of a rate as I got, which was the best possible rate I could have got. Yeah. Uh, and and my, my, you know, I'm very lucky my, my spouse also has excellent credit, right? So not everyone's in that situation. But I, I do think, at least at the time that we're recording this, they are looking at legislation to change that requirement. So hopefully that comes to pass. So I think that answers your question.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it does. And, you know, the only thing I'll say is is just to acknowledge that, especially for those folks that are in government service, I do want to acknowledge that it is really hard to put a little bit aside for, you know, retirement and to also try to save up for a down payment and to pay off your loan. So like, I mean, that is that is really difficult My conversation with Ravi and Matthew covered so much ground that we're continuing it in the second episode of this two-part series on financial wellness. Stay tuned for the rest of my conversation with Ravi. We talk about what to consider when you refinance your student loans, different types of retirement accounts, and why I probably have too many subscriptions. And that's our show. Thank you to Ravi and Matthew for joining me on this episode. This episode was written by me and produced by me and Lawrence Coletti. Edit and mixed by Adam Lockwood. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division.